Good morning. Summer has started, and uh, it's been a real interesting uh, couple weeks. I shared last week some of the things going on in uh, church life, my life, pretty heavy things. Uh, funeral for a nephew. We had a funeral yesterday for, for Bill Harvey, um, a funeral just a little over a week ago. Um, and then uh, today, before this service, um, a lady caught me and asked for prayer. Her um, son's wife passed away couple days ago after giving birth to twins. Some of you may have remember seeing that story in the newspaper. And I just want to remind you that as we go into summer, there's a lot of people uh, going through some really difficult times. We received a call, uh, three calls in the last few days of people that are um, dealing with very serious health issues with cancer and heart conditions and um, may not make it through the next month. And so uh, one of the things that I love about the church is this is a place where we don't, uh, we're not Pollyanna-ish. We don't just act like there's nothing going on that's, um, or that, that would cause us to cry or to pause and be sad. But I want to ask you, if maybe you're going through something right now in your life, maybe something pretty heavy. And I just want to pause because I want us to give those burdens to the Lord so we can hear from him today what God has to say. And I especially want to pray for, the, for Dustin Cisneros as well. Uh, that's the husband um, who's lost his wife and has two little ones that he's taking care of now and for his family. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you tell us who, if we are weary and heavy laden to come to you and we would find rest for our souls. And Lord, there are people in this room right now who need that right now, who need your care, who need your grace, who need your comfort. Would you bring that to them, Lord, in a supernatural way, in a way that only you can? You understand this better than anybody. You were there, Father. You were there observing everything that went on, and you wept when we wept, and, and um, you agonized over the pain that we experienced because you know that in this world there's trouble and there's difficulties, and things don't always go as as you designed them to go. And so, Lord, we just uh, place ourselves before you, acknowledging that you are still Lord, you are still good, you are still loving, and you are working in us and for us, even in the midst of these painful situations. So give grace and peace this day, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, summer uh, has hit. I checked the forecast. There, um, there's no snow on the horizon, as far as I can tell. Yes. Unless you like skiing, the rest of us, yes, let's put the sweaters away and turn the heat off and get the AC on and enjoy summer. One of the favorite things about summer for me is traveling. Uh, I love to go across the country. We have a beautiful um, United States, whether it be the mountains of Colorado or the, the hills in North Dakota or the farmlands of Wisconsin, Minnesota, the lakes, the oceans. I mean, there's so many beautiful places all across this country. And if you fly by plane, even though I often prefer that way because it's quicker, uh, I do love driving uh, places because you get to experience things you would never experience flying. I mean, stopping in little towns and, and seeing the historic buildings, eating at little cafes. And every once in a while, there's a surprise. Uh, my wife and I drove through Illinois once after dropping our son off for college and came through Springfield, Illinois. Now, I knew that was the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln. I didn't know they had a fantastic museum dedicated to him and his presidency and learning all the history there. We spent a half day at the museum. We're just blown away and very moved by his life and, and what he's done for this country. One time when our family was coming back from my mother's retirement in Wisconsin, we stayed in Santa Fe. And the very next morning, we got up early to drive the rest of the way to Arizona. And as we came over the hills toward Albuquerque, 
There were hundreds, literally hundreds of hot air balloons dotting the sky. We didn't realize this was, this was the nation's biggest balloon festival. And we just happened to be there during that time period. So we pulled off to the side of the road to watch Snoopy and, and all these other characters flying by. And it was just an amazing experience. We wouldn't have seen that in an airplane. We saw that on a road trip. And so I know some of you have already got out your maps and you've checked your phones and the, and the directions. You've checked TripAdvisor to find locations to stop uh, on your road trip this summer. Well, we are taking a road trip as a church because our spiritual lives are very much like a road trip from where we are now to a, a better destination. I mean, we live on this earth, but the Bible says we are aliens and sojourners. We are journeying to another destination, an eternal home. And along this journey are a lot of turns, a lot of twists, and a lot of exciting surprises. And many people have this perception that religion is very boring. I grew up that way. I grew up in a church where I said, man, this feels so boring, the routines and the rituals, and we sing this, and we give this, and we, and we stand for this, and we sit for that, and um, it just felt very confining. And sometimes sin feels like that's what's exciting. I mean, sin is exciting. Religion, kind of stifling. Until I became a Christian. And then I realized the most exciting thing I've ever experienced in my life was following Jesus. It was far more fun than sin, far more rewarding and uh, far more exciting than I ever imagined. See, Jesus didn't come to establish a new religion. He came to establish a relationship with you, one that is a journey, a journey that's full of adventure, full of excitement. And if you're someone who's grown up with the perception that being a Christian means I'm going to have to get pretty boring, you are missing it. Or if you're a Christian who says my life is kind of mundane and routine, I I think you're living it wrongly because it was intended to be this exciting adventure. And we're going to talk about that this summer because we're going to walk through the book of Philippians. We're calling it a joy ride because it's a road trip through a book of the Bible, but the theme of this book is joy. See, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this book, and uh, the theme of it is joy. This word pops up more than a dozen times in the form of, of joy or the word rejoice. It's a theme which is so surprising because the author is Paul. Now, think about Paul. Paul um, was, was a man, if, just to give you a quick history, Paul was born with the name Saul. He was named after the first king of Israel and grew up in the Jewish religion. He was very religious. In fact, he was moving up the ranks to become a leader in the Jewish faith. He wanted to be a Pharisee. He wanted to be a, a teacher. And along the way, he heard about this sect of people called People of the Way. It was the, it was the Christians And he wanted to squash them out. And so he supervised while one of the first Christian leaders, a man named Stephen, was stoned to death. And then he went and got um, permission to go to the city of Damascus to arrest the Christians there. And on the road there, he encountered the Lord in this incredible experience. He was blinded by the light. And uh, in a moment of humility, he, he repented of his sin. He gave his life to Christ. He was baptized, and God gave him a mission. He said, you're going to be my chosen voice to take the gospel to the Gentiles. This very Jewish man would be God's messenger to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we're going to find as we go through this book that Paul lived anything but a boring life. It was constantly a life of adventure. But he's in prison at this time. He's in prison in Rome. And the prospects are that he might get executed. Now, when you're facing the possibility of execution, that's not the time you think about writing a letter about joy. And yet that's what he does. Because he knows that if I... If I am executed, I get to go to be with Jesus. That's pretty good news, right? And if I stay here, that's also good news because I get to stay with you. So I win either way. I'm happy about that. And so 
Paul writes from this position of ex- extreme joy, no matter what he faces, times of poverty, times of prosperity, he's okay with it. He's found the secret of finding joy in every circumstance. And it's also surprising considering the people he's writing to. The, the Philippians live in a region called Macedonia, and they are very poor. You can read about their poverty in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, but they are very poor. And yet, um, they are supporting Paul in his mission work. They're actually one of the first churches to contribute to his support. And yet, there's disunity in the church. There's false teaching in the church. And yet, Paul says, hey, guys, put a smile on your face. It's time to be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. And so he's writing to them about this incredible joy that we can experience in a relationship with Jesus. Now, I know we don't live in the same situation as the Philippians did, and we're not the Apostle Paul, but I want to tell you this. We serve the same God he did. And the same life that he entered into in his relationship with Christ is the same kind of life that God wants for you. And so this summer, I want, to, I want you to experience a real joy ride, that your walk with Jesus would be one that's filled with thrills and exciting adventures. Living for Jesus is the greatest adventure of all. And we're going to see that as we read a text from uh, Acts chapter 16. Now, it seems odd that we would be starting a series on Philippians in the book of Acts, but we're actually not even going to read from the book of Philippians today because I want to give you the backstory to how the book came about. In, the, in Acts chapter 16, and by the way, Acts chapter 16 follows Acts chapter 15. It's like right after. <laughs> Acts chapter 15 tells a story of, of these Gentile Christians. Paul's been starting churches, and Gentiles are coming to the faith. Now, Gentiles are everyone that's not Jewish. And there were terms to describe them. The Jews were kind of known amongst themselves as the circumcised group. God had given them a special marking that designated them as belonging to God. And the Gentiles had this derisive term as they're the uncircumcised group. Well, now this uncircumcised group is coming to faith in Christ, and they've never grown up in the church. They don't know the Old Testament stories of Moses and everybody. They just hear the gospel of Jesus and say, I want forgiveness. I want what Jesus has to offer, and they give their lives to Christ. And so now they're starting to come together in church meetings, and there's some tension. It would be today, just to compare, if you take a a group of inner city dwellers who've just spent their whole lives in the inner city, and all the this activity that goes on in the inner city and says, okay, we're going to transplant you and put you in a community of Amish people who are very routine, have their rituals down, know what their life's about, and say, okay, get along with each other now. So you have Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles were, were pagans. They, they worshiped multiple gods. They did things that Jews would never do. And now they're coming into the church, and the Jews go, hey, don't they need to become like us? Shouldn't they do some of the things we do, particularly be circumcised? And so the church leaders come together in Acts chapter 15 and hold what's called the Jerusalem Council. And in that council, they pray and they hear testimonies and they come to a conclusion with the help of God that they will not require circumcision of these people. They're not becoming Jews. They're becoming Christians. And we're not going to make it difficult for them. But in order to bring harmony to the group, there are some things we expect them to do. And so they list some things like don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols, avoid sexual immorality, and some other things. It says, this will help you guys get along. So Paul says, okay, I'm going to go take that message, and I'm going to go deliver it to the churches I planted. So he's traveling through Asia Minor. He's, he's going back to the churches he helped start. He's trying to let them know this is what the decision is about how you guys can get along. And in the process, some really weird things happen. And here's the story. It's found in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. 
And they, speaking of Paul and his companions, and by the way, Saul became Paul. We don't know why his name became Paul, but I think it was this, that oftentimes when people became Christians and the change was so dramatic, they changed their name. And Paul, by the way, means small. It's like Paul said, I'm not a big deal anymore. I thought I was a big thing. I'm not. I'm just little in, in God's eyes. But I'm, but, I'm, but I'm in. I'm part of his kingdom and I'm part of his work. So Paul and his companions, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Well, why in the world would the Holy Spirit say, don't, don't preach there? And then when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. Well, what's going on here? I'm trying to get the word out, and the Holy Spirit is blocking us. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. By the way, if you notice a change in the tense there, the we, this is called the we section. This is the first we section in the book of Acts. The author, who is Luke, joins him at this point. So now it's a we. So he joins them, and they head over to Macedonia. Why is this so significant? This is so significant because this is the first time the gospel will, will enter a new continent, the continent of Europe. And it'll go to places like Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, Colossae, names that become books of the Bible. And not only that, that eventually the gospel will come all the way across Europe and will sail across Europe in the late 1400s, early 1500s to South America and North America. It's because God has a desire to reach the world with the gospel. God has a plan, and he's unfolding it, and Paul's a critical part of it. And as we look at Paul's life, and this, especially this incident here, I see some um, patterns that are very applicable to us in our lives. We don't have, Mr., the same um, weight of the call upon our lives, but we are called to share the gospel with others. And I believe that our life with Christ can be just as adventurous as his. As I said, living for Jesus is the greatest adventure. Well, what makes it so great? How do you, how do you turn your Christian life into a great adventure? Well, first of all, let the Holy Spirit take the driver's seat. Let the Holy Spirit take the driver's seat. Paul had good intentions. I mean, he had a good plan. I'm going to take this message. I'm going to go to those churches. And God, of course, you blessed me when I did that. That's what I'm going to do. So he starts out that way, roadblock. Hmm, okay. Then I'm going to go over that way because, of course, they need to hear it. So God, I'm going to go that way. He heads over this way. Holy Spirit blocks them. Now, I don't know, and they don't give the details as if, how it happens isn't that important. He just knows it's God stopping us. And it's got to be pretty significant for Paul to be stopped from sharing the gospel. I mean, he's got to know it's God stopping him because if it's the devil, he's plowing through. But he's stopped, and he, and he changes course, changes course, and then he has this vision of this man. And as soon as he hears this vision, he goes, that's it. We're going right now, immediately. We don't, we don't have to think about it. That's what God's been trying to get us to do. He's trying to redirect us. When you walk with the Holy Spirit, when you follow the Holy Spirit, he will take you on a path that's very different, possibly, than the path you had planned. Remember back when those leaders met in the Jerusalem Council back in Acts chapter 15? When they were um, coming to their conclusion, there's, a, there's a, a phrase in the letter that they wrote to the churches that says this, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us 
Think about that. This decision that we're making came about because it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, not to require any more than these things that they, that they listed. This involvement of the Holy Spirit and them together. Best decisions are made when there's a cooperation between God's Spirit and our minds. Uh, we, we, we don't shut God out. If you do that, you're going to make some bad decisions. But you don't abdicate and say, God, I'm just going to stand back. You tell me what to do because I'm not going to participate. I had a staff member once years ago, and he was over a department in the church, and I said, what is God leading you to do in your department? How is God directing you to guide that ministry? He says, I don't know, but I'll do whatever you want me to do. I said, no, no, no. I, I don't know what needs to be done there, but you do. You're the head of that department. You, you're the one who's praying about it, thinking about it all the time. What has God been showing you for that ministry? He goes, I don't know, but tell me what to do and I'll do it. And see, what I was wanting him to do was, was take ownership of resting with God and the Holy Spirit and determining what does God want me to do. See, when Jesus left this earth, he says, I'm going to send my spirit. He'll guide you. He'll teach you. He'll reveal things to you. He'll walk with you. He'll be your comforter. He'll be your counselor. See, one of the things I think we, we forget is that in the early church, they didn't, have, they didn't have Bibles like we do. It wasn't like, hey, everybody, open up your Bible. We don't have a Bible. We don't, have, we don't even have a book. Books weren't printed then. So what did they have? What did they do for Sunday school? Oh, anybody have a Bible book? Nope. Uh, what did they do? What did they do when the Christians gathered together? We learned the book of Acts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. What did they do? Well, they would talk about the message that Peter gave or the message that John gave or one of the apostles. And they would talk about how does that apply to lives. And you know what? Their lives were transformed by that. Even without having a Bible. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was guiding them. I think sometimes we've traded, say, I don't need the Holy Spirit because I have the Bible. And it should be the other way around. I'm following the Holy Spirit, and the Bible helps to confirm what the Holy Spirit's trying to lead me and to teach me. See, in the book of Galatians, Paul writes to another church and reminds them of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in their lives. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16... Paul writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. A couple verses later, he says, but if you are led by the Spirit. Well, walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, sounds kind of like the same thing. What does that mean? It means the Holy Spirit's doing a lot of influencing in my life. He's leading me. I'm walking with him. I'm talking with him. See, for some of us, that's kind of a new concept. We don't think of God being that intimate, but he is. Remember in the Old Testament, God used to lead by a pillar, uh, a fire by night and a cloud by day. And whenever that, that cloud moved, they moved. Well, let's, let's, let's move that cloud in here. What, what, if, what if God says, okay, when I move you, you move. When I speak to you, you go. When I say stop, you stop. What if God through his spirit is trying to lead you to walk with him? I mean, it takes, it's very relational. It's very interactive. I believe that's what God wants. A little later in the book of Galatians, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It just gives this picture of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm walking with the Spirit. I'm being led by the Spirit. I am living by the Spirit. It sounds like the Spirit's pretty important, right? And when he's in the driver's seat of your life, he will direct you down an exciting path, the path that God wants for you. See, many of us, like Paul, have a good plan. This is what I'd like to do. I want to go there and do this for God. Sounds good, right? And sometimes God says, I'm all behind it. Other times God says, sounds good, but I, have actually, I actually have a better plan. And sometimes your good plan 
can get in the way of God's better plan. And we have to be willing to say, God, I'm willing to forfeit what I thought was a good idea and trust that you have a better idea for me. And, you know, that happens in a lot of areas of life. The person you date, the job you take, the house you buy, all, a lot of things in life where you say, God, this is what I thought would, was going to be good for me. And God says, mm, no. I mean, it is good, but I have a lot better. And if you just trust God and to hold out, you'll see God unfold that plan in your life. I've seen it happen so many times. God is wanting to work. Now, how do you know when it's the Spirit leading you? How do you know if it's the Spirit saying stop or go? Well, one of the ways is, and Paul, Paul lists this in Galatians 5, in those passages on being led by the Spirit and walking with the Spirit, there's a section in between that called the fruit of the Spirit. And if he's leading, if he's leading your life, you will find things like joy, peace, patience, love, kindness, gentleness, those things being produced. There'll be positive fruit coming out of that decision. If you're finding that the direction you're going is producing fits of anger, dissension, jealousy, rage, immorality, then then obviously he says you're not following the Holy Spirit because that's not what he produces. So look at what fruit's being produced by that decision. Look at your family. Look at your spouse. Look at the people around you. What is it producing? What are, what are the, what's happening in those godly relationships? Is it upsetting them? Is it bringing peace? That's a good sign of whether, whether the Holy Spirit's leading or not. Another is this. The Holy Spirit will always lead you in the direction of advancing God's kingdom. He'll always lead you in, in the direction of advancing God's kingdom. If he's got a better plan, it's because his kingdom needs you to move another direction. Now, what do we do about these roadblocks? Well, don't be discouraged by the roadblocks. Don't be discouraged by them. You can hit a roadblock as you serve God, and all of a sudden, you can have one of two responses. One would be, here's a roadblock. It's, it's just a little bump in the road. We're going to press on through. We're going to break through. Uh, we're gonna... Am I still there? Yes, there I am. We're just going to keep pushing through this thing to get to the other side. It takes tenacity to do that. Other times, you keep pushing and pushing, and you get bruised, and your head gets sore, and you go, I think... God's saying no, and I need to try a different way. And how do you know whether you should keep pushing, 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 or shift directions? Well, sometimes it's after you've pushed a while, and then you don't get the door to open. Then you, then you turn. But sometimes we quit after the first no. Like you hit a roadblock. Oh, I tried to write a book, and no publisher took it, so I quit. Or I tried a ministry, and it didn't work out, so I'm not going to try anymore. I guess God doesn't want me to serve. Don't give up easily. You know, I've known men who really set their heart on a certain woman. And, and these men, as they, were, they, they chased these women, says, I'm going to ask her out. And the girl said, no, I'm going out with you. Never go out with you. A while later, he comes back and says, oh, you're missing out something. You should go out with me. I'm not going to go out with you. You know, after three or four tries, she finally says, okay, I'll go out with you one time. And they go, actually have a really good time. And so they go out a second time and a third time. Pretty soon the question isn't, do uh, you want to go out with me? It's, will you marry me? And see, in, that, in those cases, the man saw no, not as a dead end, but no as the first two letters of not yet. <laughs> not yet. And sometimes that's what, the, what it is, the roadblock. Sometimes it's just a not yet. And God is testing our resolve. Do you really want that? Because if you don't, I'm not going to give it to you. There was a time in my life where I was 
talking to another pastor, and I got, got a little discouraged in my ministry. I knew that God wanted me to do something different. I didn't know what, and a pastor says, hey, let's go plant a church in the uh, East Valley of Phoenix. I said, hey, that sounds really exciting. And we talked about it and dreamed about it. I got, I got pretty excited. It's kind of like the excitement you get when you, when you start looking at new cars. You go, oh, man, that car would be really cool. Or, man, that house, if we got a house like that, that'd be so awesome. So if we started a new church like this, you know, this church would not have any problems. It'd be like this great, perfect church. And so I was getting real excited about that and shared it with Julie. Then I talked to my, uh, um, the pastors over me, and they weren't excited. They, they didn't think it was a really good idea. And you know what? Pretty soon I dropped that idea and moved on. And I, I, in hindsight, look back and go, was it really that committed to it in the first place that I would give up that easily? And I'm so glad I didn't push down that path because I never would have come here. I never would have moved to Colorado Springs if I would have gone that route and probably, probably would have been so discouraged because it was a, just a fickle idea. Sometimes God is testing your resolve. Is that really what you want? And if it is, push hard, push hard because you might experience um, this thing opening up. You may push through if you push hard enough, but, but other times God wants to redirect you for a breakthrough somewhere else. That's what he did with Paul. I don't want you to keep pushing through there's going to be a breakthrough in Europe. The gospel is going to break through new territory. In 1844, a friend took uh, some of Horace Wells' laughing gas, this mixture of nitrous oxide, and he was doing a stage show and cut a gash in his leg. Amazingly, he didn't even know he cut himself because what they discovered was nitrous oxide is an anesthetic. And that became the beginning of anesthesia. Aren't you glad? A guy named Spencer, or Percy Spencer was an engineer at Raytheon. He's, he was playing around with this uh, magnetron that emitted certain signals and found that as he was doing that, the, the chocolate bar in his pocket was getting kind of warm. So he decided to redirect the rays of this onto various food items and found that, that the microwave energy heated the food up and he created the first microwave oven and made Orville Redenbacher incredibly rich <laughs> and college students very happy. See, sometimes it's in the redirection that we experience a breakthrough. God is, by the way, I came across a quote by Henry Ward Beecher that I think explains the difference between tenacity and, um, and rebellious stubbornness. See, stubbornness can be good and stubbornness can be bad. There's a stubbornness that says, I am, I'm going to lock my, my hands onto this and I'm not letting go. There's another stubbornness that's like a toddler who says, I want it my way and no way else. And stubbornness can work for us or against us. And Henry Ward Beecher said, the difference between perseverance and obstinacy is that one often comes from a strong will and the other from a strong won't. Like, I'm not going to give up on this. This is what I want. This, this week, a legendary football player passed away. Uh, such a humble man, Bart Starr, played quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. Uh, many people don't know that he was drafted in the 17th round in 1956. They don't even have 17 rounds of draft today. I mean, the 17th round, and he, he got on the, the team as a backup quarterback, but eventually worked himself up into the lead role and eventually started to win football games. His first playoff game, he lost but he never lost again. Won the next nine playoff games and three world championships. And he's considered one of the great football players. You know, it could have been easy to give up. 
It could have been easy to look at that roadblock and say, well, that's the end, but he pressed on. See, I believe that oftentimes what God wants for us is, is to see us moving, is to see us moving in a direction that says, okay, now that you're moving, you might be moving towards something, and I'm going to redirect you. Or you might be moving towards something, and God says, I'm going to give you extra energy to work through that, but I want you to be moving. Have you ever tried to move a car that's in a standstill position, or at least turn the wheels, how difficult it is because of the friction? And yet when that car is moving, even at 10 miles an hour, you can move it so easily to the right or to the left. God can move you in the right direction far more easily when you're moving than when you're stationary. And so many of us sit back and say, well, God shows me what to do, then I'll start moving. God says, you start moving, then I'll show you what to do. Do something. Don't just sit there, do something. Well, God, I don't know what to do. Do something. Even if it's, the, even if it's your best attempt, it might, it might be an okay plan or it might be a good plan, but it's in the pursuit of those plans that God says, okay, I'll show you now a better plan. So you usually, usually don't find it on the first attempt, and it doesn't work that way in almost any area of life. You find athletes, and they start off pretty rough. They've got to learn, and they learn from their mistakes, and they get better, and all of a sudden they become really great because they persevered. And sometimes we just need to get moving. We just need to put ourselves out there and trust that God can, can guide us and can work in us. Don't let the roadblocks stop you. And then keep on with the mission. Keep on with the mission. God is uh, redirecting Paul through this vision of the Macedonian man to go to Europe. And if you, you remember way back in the Old Testament, we talked about this just a few, a few months ago, God gave a promise to Abraham that Abraham would become a great man, have a large family, and that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God had a plan that through Abraham's family, God would bring a seed, that seed being Jesus Christ. God would bring a seed that would be the source of blessing to all the nations on the earth. And so now that Jesus has come, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he says, go, go make disciples of all nations. He says, get out there, get out there, spread the word. He says, the Holy Spirit will empower you to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so they start sharing the gospel. And they started in Jerusalem, but they're not going very far. It's taking a long time. They're just staying put in that area because it's comfortable. It's people they know. And, and God allows a persecution to come that drives them out into Judea and Samaria. And so now people are going out to those regions to witness. God says, I want to go even further. There are people all around this earth that I love, that my son died for, and they need to hear. And Paul, you've been in, you've been in Asia long enough. Get over to Europe now. And so he goes to Europe. And he arrives uh, first in, a, in an area called Samothrace. Then he goes down the coast to Neapolis and ends up in the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi is kind of an interesting city. It had been captured by uh, Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great, the, the great military warrior. Uh, he annexed the city, renamed it after himself, after Philip. It, it became Philippi. And it became a Roman colony eventually where uh, Roman soldiers, retired Roman soldiers, settled. So uh, they obeyed the Roman laws. They, everything was Roman about them. And so Paul is heading into that region. He's carrying out the mission amongst those people. But his typical pattern was to go into a city and first go to the synagogue. He would go to the synagogue because he would reason with the people from their own scriptures, proving that Jesus was the Christ. But when he gets to Philippi, there's no synagogue. Why is that? It only took 10, history says it took 10 men, 10 families to, to launch a synagogue. 10 families who were tithing who then could support the synagogue. 
Well, it says they didn't even have 10 Jewish families in Philippi. So what did he do? He went looking for any signs of faith, and he found a group of women having a prayer meeting down by the river. He goes down there, and he speaks to them. And there's a woman there by the name of Lydia. Lydia is a merchant who deals in purple cloth. Now, now for us, that seems like no big deal, but it was huge then. Purple cloth was the cloth of the emperor. It was royal cloth. The color purple uh, indicated royalty. And to make cloth purple, they didn't have synthetic dyes like we did. They actually found things in nature that would allow them to dye cloth. And in order to get this very beautiful purple color, they took it from the, a gland in a tiny snail. It would take more than 12,000 of these mollusks to get one and a half grams of purple dye. And that dye, in its weight, was worth more than gold. In fact, we learn um, that a pound of wool dyed with this purple dye sold for 1,000 denarii, which was three years of wages. So take your salary, multiply it by three. That's what it would cost to get this pound of wool dyed purple. I mean, she is a sharp businesswoman. And God opens up her heart. She receives the gospel. They baptize her. And as far as we know, she's the first convert in the nation of Europe. And then along the way, he encounters this girl. She's a young girl who's possessed by a demon, and she can tell fortunes. Now, she can't tell what's coming in the future. Satan can't do that. But, but she can, through the demonic spirit, tell things that are happening around and be very accurate. And her owners are using her as their means of income. So Paul comes into town, and this girl sees him, and she reacts because the demon in her responds. You'll find this around Jesus, too. When Jesus gets around demonic spirits, they speak very clearly about who he is, and they're not shy about announcing it. So here's what she said as they came near her. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. I could have said it better myself. this, This demonic spirit's telling exactly who Jesus is, but... But Paul doesn't do anything. You expect, well, isn't he going to drive the demon out? Not yet. It says this goes on for several days. And she keeps pestering him. And she's getting to be annoying that Paul finally says, okay, demon come out of her. And immediately the the demon leaves this girl and she's delivered. And she comes to her senses and she's like a normal person. See, here's the problem that Paul knew that he was getting into. If I cast this demon out of this girl... I'm going to anger those men because that's their means of income. I'm cutting off their source of income, which is exactly what happens. These guys become irate. They go to the authorities and say, these men are, these men are coming into town. They're hurting our businesses. They're, uh, they're teaching things that are against our customs here. And so they get a mob gathers around and beats these guys. Paul and his friend Silas, they get beaten. They get hit with rods by the authorities I mean, they get flogged, basically, beaten up, and then they get thrown into a cold prison, and their feet are shackled. And what happens there? They start singing songs. They start praying. They're very loud because the whole prison hears it. And people are just amazed, like, these guys are nuts. They just got beat up. (laughs) They just got thrown in prison, and they're singing praise to God. And then at midnight, an earthquake hits, and the whole building collapses, and the, the jailer realizes that all of his prisoners are going to escape. So he takes his sword. He's ready to fall on it because he realizes, I'm responsible. I'm going to be punished for that. So I'm just going to take my own life. And Paul says, wait, wait, wait. None of us have left. 
Paul and Silas are still in the room. And all the other men who have an opportunity to run away, they're still standing here. Nobody's left. Don't kill yourself. Now, three miracles just took place. One is the miracle of two men who've been severely beaten unjustly singing in prison. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Second one is, a, is this, this weird earthquake comes in the middle of the night. Where'd that come from? Another miracle. Third one is when, when prisoners have an opportunity to run, what do they do? They run, and they, these guys don't. They just stay there. And I think because they know they were so amazed at what God was doing that they knew something incredible is happening right before our eyes. We don't want to miss it. And so this jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And the man takes Paul and Silas, welcomes them into his house, feeds them, washes his wounds, washes their wounds, the wounds they, 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 of the beating they took before they got thrown into prison, washes all the dried blood off of them, cleans them up, has a meal. They all get baptized. And so when you think of the Philippian church, think of a businesswoman who sells purple cloth. Think of a young girl who had a demon cast out of her. Think of a a jailer who almost took his own life and his family, and that becomes the nucleus of the church in Philippi. See, Paul is taking the gospel to places it had never gone before, and it just makes me wonder, who does God want to use you to take the gospel to? See, Jesus has two invitations to us. They go like this. The first one is come. Come to me. Come follow me. And once you come and follow Jesus, he turns you around and says, okay, now go, go, go. And we see this in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19, the first part of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, I used to think that was just for the apostles, but it wasn't. It was for all of us. And the reason it's for all of us is because there are still more people that need to hear Jesus. And if they would have died with the apostles, if, if that message is only for them, and they all died, that means nobody in the rest of the earth will ever hear the gospel because the guys that were supposed to take it are all die, have all died. No, we, we take the baton now. It's our job. I just want to ask you, how are you doing with that? Who are you taking the gospel to? Who's in your circle of influence? Who's outside that God's opened doors to? I mean, my wife's taken a group of, of ladies to go to Indonesia this summer. God's opened a door to take the gospel there, share the love of Christ with women who've been rescued from, from human trafficking. God's opened a door for me and, and some others to go back to Myanmar um, in January of next year. But I'm even looking at, when I was riding on the plane this week, uh, the people sitting next to me, I started doing, I just wanted to sit there and mind my own business and read my book. And I said, you know, I wonder if God's put me in this place for a reason. So I talked to the woman on my right and learned about her life and why she's going to Minnesota. I talked to the guy on my left and learned about him. And uh, I didn't lead either one of them to Christ on the plane. But actually, the man that was on my left, I, have his, I became friends on Facebook, and I'm going to follow him and what God is doing in his life. What if we all started to think, God, I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission for you. Monday, my wife and I watched a special on D-Day. D-Day, uh, this week, will be the 75th anniversary of the invasion of Normandy. And I didn't know the whole background of that story, but I was so amazed. It was so captivating how our military says we're going to do the most difficult thing to send highly trained ranger troops to climb 100-foot cliffs to take out the, the armory of the Germans. And we know it's a dangerous mission. We know we're going to lose a lot of lives, but we have to do it. 
And so even when the mission was going off course, when they, when they were three miles from where they should be and they got to the beach later than they should and the Germans were already firing down on them, they, they, they said, no, we have to persist. We have to persevere because that's our mission. And they did. And they took the hill. And, that, and they, that's, that one conflict is looked at as the turning point in World War II. And I'm always impressed when I talk to our military and hear them talk about the mission. It's all about the mission. It's all about the mission. We know what our mission is. But we as Christians have a mission. We're in a great war. And you're part of that mission. How are you doing in your mission? As we go through this riot, I want to ask you, would you offer yourself to go where the Spirit leads, to be His voice, to cast aside even your good plans and say, God, you have a better plan, even for me. Would you be willing to do that? I'm going to ask you to stand and just recommit yourself to God and what he's doing and allow yourself to go on this incredible adventure with him to take the gospel wherever he leads you to go. And I'm going to invite our prayer partners to be available up front. Maybe God's stirring something within you today. Maybe you hit a roadblock in your life and you just want to lay that at the altar today. This is the time to do it as we worship.